better? Hi there. All right, so it's so been an interesting day already. We've, um, you know, we, we have seen the weather already make its wonderful change and everything that occurs. I got telling myself last night, uh, Randy, Brother Randy Coffey called. I called him yesterday morning to confirm when his uh, surgery is going to be. I think he said February the 6th. And uh, so when, he, when I saw his uh, phone number, I went, hello, darling, or something like that to him. And he, he goes, well. <laughs> and so uh, it, it was kind of fun to, to just talk with him. He and Brenda are doing really well. And if you're tuned in, Randy, it's good to have you on board. Uh, we have many that are sick. Sister Carla's not feeling well today. And Dennis and Kristen are not with us today as well. And uh, so the Lord will, uh, we're praying that the Lord will bless in our time together. We're going to turn our attention to eschatology, so if you will, let's take our Bibles to Matthew chapter 24 this morning. And uh, those of you that are tuning in from afar, we're glad that you're with us as well today, and uh, we hope that you will get a blessing out of the message. We're going to describe what you're seeing on the board. I also gave you a copy of this uh, in today's announcements. It's on behind the prayer sheet, and uh, we'll talk about that as well. So let's go to chapter 24 of the book of Matthew, go down to verse 30. And we're going to read to verse 44. Then And then shall appear the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn a parable of the fig tree, when his branch is yet tender, and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even as the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. None but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days, of, but as in the days of Noah, when uh, were so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be at the field, and one shall be taken, the other one left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, and one shall be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good men of the house had known in, which, in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Let us pray. Lord, we want to thank you again for the opportunity to be in your house, and I pray, Father, that you will uh, continue to bless and provide and uh, use this, dear Father, today that we may serve you in not only the, the capacity that you have called this church into service, but also, Lord, that we may have a true heart and a true desire to serve you today. We want to thank you for the things that are written in the scripture, and we pray, Father, that you will give us an enlightenment, not only through the truth, but, Father, that you will bless the studies that we partake together. So guide us and keep us, Lord, help us to understand the things that you give, and we will praise your name in all things, for it's in Christ we pray. Amen. If there's one thing that I am very appreciative to God for what he has done, he allows me 
uh, from time to time to just take a totally fresh approach to the scripture. And uh, many times I've used this to explore. I'll give you an example. Many years ago, I probably was uh, in my early or late 20s, I should say, my late 20s, and the question came up about, well, why don't you believe in tongues? Now, I want you to understand something. I do believe in tongues. The word tongues is in the Greek is glossé, which means languages. I do believe in languages. And I believe that when we go back to uh, Genesis chapter 11, we see the division of the people because of the languages. Languages have multiplied. Languages have changed. Uh, in fact, when the, uh, when the Lord came down to that uh, Babel and he began to change uh, the, the language of the people, English wasn't even heard of. English wasn't a known language. In fact, English is a derivative of many languages. We have uh, the Anglo, we have the Saxon, we have the Greek, we have the Latin, we have so many things that are involved with English. If uh, anything, we're probably closer to the German language than any language, and most people will um, argue with that point as well. But the thing that I found as I study the Word of God is to find the simplicity demanded that I would go back and study the things as it was written in Scripture. So having the ability of tongues is not something that we see that much of today. Uh, I don't know if you all know Brother Rodney Spears, but what is very interesting, Brother Rodney and I had an opportunity to talk. He was in the Philippines 30 days, and after 30 days he could speak fluently Tagalog. That, that's amazing. Tagalog is the national language of the Philippines. Uh, Rodney was uh, telling me that it was, he was uh, studying Spanish, and after about 30 days, he could speak Spanish very well. Uh, I struggled with German, you know, and I, I learned German. I spent some time in Germany, and I really enjoyed the time that I was there. But may I say this to you, is that not everyone has the abilities to take in the languages and to understand them clearly. That is a blessing that comes from God. Well, I've also taken the same stature when it comes to the book of Revelation, when it comes to eschatology, because a lot of people say, well, you are a product of what you've been taught all your life, therefore that's what you believe. Now, there is a substance to that statement that is true. I am a product of my teachings as I grew up. We all are. But it, it, it takes a special individual to be able to stand back for a moment and, and really study things clearly. Now, understand this. What this chart that we're going to be seeing or what this map that we have upon the board today, and again, I do apologize for its rudimentary style, but you'll understand this in just a moment. You will find that there is a great reason why we have to understand the things that are written. I'll give you another one, and I want you to see this. Uh, in verse 34 of what we just read, it says, Verily I send to you this generation. Now stop here for a moment. The wording of this generation, does it mean, does it mean the apostles' generation? Does it mean the generation that the Lord spoke with? Or is there another generation that, that is speaking of? In reality, it is not speaking of the apostles' generation. I had to go back in and study that. Very, you know, very much of a challenge. Because notice again, notice in verse 33 it says, So likewise, when you see all... 
So in verse 33, it's telling us that the generation that is mentioned in verse 34 is not going to pass till all the things that the Lord spoke of to the apostles will come into place. Now let's take our attention to the chart, and I'll show you why I think this is so important for us to look at. I had someone say to me one time, do you really think that you're smarter than John Gill? Man, I hate it when somebody does something like that or asks that kind of question. Reality is, is that I don't have the vocabulary of John Gill. I don't have the vocabulary of Charles Spurgeon. I don't even have the vocabulary of uh, someone called William Shakespeare. They said William Shakespeare contained about 30,000 words in his vocabulary. I utilize about 7,500 different words in my vocabulary, though I crux, and you do as well, about 3,000 words. And if you can understand 3,000 words, you probably have done better than most people. Reality is, is that, and what I mean by crux, we use them over and over and over and over and again, okay? But when we come into certain words like eschatology, we have to explain what it means. Pneumatology, I have to explain what it means. Uh, dispensation, I've got to explain what it means. So those are words that I use frequently in my conversations, but to bring it down into simple time effect, I want you and I both to understand everything that has been mentioned. Now let's go back to this, and I, I want to slow down just for a moment to make sure that you see this. When we start at this bell curve, or this large curve, a lot of people say, well, why did you put a curve? Because I want you to think about the way everything was created from the beginning. If I look back to the book of Genesis, I have to look over a large curve, and I don't understand everything that was created in the beginning. You don't understand it. I don't understand it. We have to take the product of faith, how that God was able to speak into existence the things that occurred. How many of you all believe in the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea? How many of you saw physically the crossing of the Red Sea? We did not see it, but we believe it, and it's a product of faith. How many of us believe in the ten plagues that were brought upon Egypt in the book of Exodus? How many of you all saw the ten plagues that happened in the book of Exodus? We didn't see them, but we believe them. Matter of fact, we haven't even seen what the tabernacle looked like in the wilderness as the, the pattern was given unto Moses in the book of Exodus and later on revealed through the book of Numbers. So everything that we see is there but we can only see a little bit of it. Now, here's the thing that's amazing. By the way, how many of us remember that God told Abraham to look at the stars in heaven and count them and tell them how many there were? I really believe that at that moment, God separated the, the sky so, so Abraham could see far off in the distance and see all And they're all on the seashore. And yet, what did God say? You will be that numeric. You, you will have that much in number in your generations, in your families. No one's going to be able to count them. He's right. How many sands are up on the seashore? We're little particles of sand. We just don't know. I mean, it's impossible for us to count it. Yet God promised Abraham that as the number of sand, you know, little sparkles of sand are upon the seashore, so shall the number of his people be. 
Now, with that in mind, I want you to get this. At the very bottom, you'll see the word apostles. And I'm talking right now to the bottom left. When the Lord explained things to the apostles, he was very clear and concise. And they could see, and if you notice, I did a broken line for the coming of the Lord. How do I know that this is true? Well, let's just, you know, a little bit of an example. Let's go over, if you will. Uh, just for a moment, let's go to 1 Thessalonians. And I want you to see chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to go down to verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1. Notice what it says. But in the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Where did we see that? Did we not just read that in Matthew chapter 24? That the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. But when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction come upon them, as travail upon a woman the child escape. Where is the peace and safety? We're going to see that is referring to the children of Israel when the Lord said to them, You know, don't wait, don't go get anything, rush into the wilderness where I have prepared a place for you. And notice again, but ye brethren are not in darkness that you should take away that you should overtake you as a thief. You are the children of light and the children of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Alright, so that brings up this question. So the apostles saw the coming of the Lord. And everything that we see, not only with, with Paul, but we see it with Peter, we see it with all the apostles, that they understood the coming of the Lord, and they believed that the coming of the Lord would be a pre-trib position. Now, many people might argue that point. But here's the thing. As in the days of Noah, the, the one catalyst that we see more than anything is what does it mean to be as in the days of Noah? In the days of Noah, did Noah go on board the ark when the raindrops began to fall? The answer is no. Did Noah enter the ark about halfway through, about uh, three and a half days? You know, did he go into the ark? The answer is no. But for an entire week, before the blood. All right, that is the one thing we can take from Scripture. He waited upon the Lord, he trusted in the Lord, and he knew that the Lord was going to be with him, and so that for that entire week ahead of time, he was there. Why then do we find as in the days of Noah? We have here in verse 36 of chapter 24, but, in, at, but at, at that day and hour knoweth no man, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as in the days of Noah, where so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Do you realize we're preaching a message that nobody wants to hear? We are saying constantly that the Son, that the Son of God is on his way in the return. Now, if we knew the exact moment that Jesus Christ would return, we would all straighten up and fly right, Dad would say. But the reality is, is we don't know when Jesus is coming back. 
So every day we should be like the anticipating virgin waiting upon her groom to come. She should adorn herself. She should prepare herself. In other words, she should keep herself pure. But look what else it says. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. In other words, what we see today the normal existence of time. How many of us feel like that we are in the most wicked of times right now? But how many of you all realize that when Jesus came to the earth, that was the most wicked of times? How many of us know that before the flood, it was, on the, e it was the evil of times? How do we know that? Because it says in the book of Genesis chapter 6, that evil was continually on the mind of men. Murder, rape, incest, you name it. There was all kinds of problems that occurred during the days that Noah lived upon the earth. I don't think that we can even partially imagine the difficulty that Noah had. One, one of the questions I'm going to ask Noah when I, get to, when I get to see him in the millennial reign, I'm going to say, Noah, what did you face? How many of you think that Noah faced bureaucracy? Don't we face it all the time? There was a, I'm going to tell you a little, little story. Uh, where right now, and I'm going to say Lewis Kiger, uh, pastor of this church down in Tennessee. I could be wrong. I know his dad pastored there for a while. I was pastoring in California, and I had this uh, preacher call me one time. He said, Brother Prater, can you help this little church out? I said, well, what do we need? He said, they need money to be their church. He said their old church building is, is infested with termites. It's falling down around them. They need a new building. I said, I'll be glad to help out. And so I brought it before the church, and the church uh, motioned and made uh, the determination to send $5,000 for their help. Later on, we sent more money. And when the building was finished, they were getting ready to enter into the building, and the bureaucracy showed up. You cannot... And you got to remove that. Well, they were, they were distraught. They had just spent all their money. And this was down in Tennessee, right close to, to Kingsford, where they had just been, been sitting upon the Lord and waiting upon his mercies. They entered in on a Wednesday night and they began to pray, God, we don't know what to do. And while they were praying, there was a knock on the door. The local construction team that was there said, look, uh, we got a dilemma. You see, we need some gravel. And we need, some, we need it quick, we need it close and everything. And here's what we'd like to do for you all. You see that mountain that's behind you all? We'd like to take that mountain down. And if you will give us this mountain, we'll pay you X amount of That is absolute truth. That little tiny church, while they were in the prayer meeting, though bureaucracy wanted to shut them down, God provided a way, and the mountain was removed, and their land was paved so that they now have access to that location. Isn't that wonderful? 
I believe that Noah faced bureaucracy like no one's business. And we don't even know what he faced. I just believe that he did. And when we get the opportunity, we're going to see him. That giving him marriage meant there was no sanctity. There was no desire. And so because of that, we married, they were Do you realize that, and I, I was talking to my son the other day, I said, it bothers me that it seems like there is no country anymore. you do anything. Not only that, but someone's got to be blamed. It was your upbringing. It was your downfall. It was all and we all but the reality is this is that the coming of Jesus Christ is not going to be hindered by what we think or how we act or anything else. So down here at the bottom, the apostles could see clearly what it was going to be like. But let's move up the way. Do you realize that in the there was an attitude where people were not studying eschatology? Entering into the thousands, not changed. But when we get up to that particular part, the dark was having an impact of people said, oh, belief was it's going to keep getting better and better and this was the first time they said and God is reigning over this world because he reigns within my heart how many of us have ever sung that song he lives he lives he talks with me along life's marrow way he lives And they said, he reigns within my heart. Post-millennialism began to cry out, 
Christ is reigning upon this earth right now because he reigns in my heart. If Christ is reigning today upon this earth, we are in bad shape. Not only that, there's this preeminent thought that Satan is chained. If Satan is chained, he's got a long chain. He's not limited. We're not in Revelation 20. And Israel has not been restored. And that's what everything's going to come down to. So when John Gill, we lost everything. So when John Gill was down, the reality is that he could not see the, the, the beauty of everything that was occurring. Reality is, is that after John Gill came Charles Spurgeon, and Spurgeon began to really teach more of what we go all the way back and we can see what others had to teach. How many of us have ever heard of the Montanist? The Montanists were early Baptist. How many of you all knew they were pre-tribulational? I've got a book upstairs uh, about the... Uh, you know, the Baptists, the Anabaptists, and the hated way that they were treated. And one of the reasons that the Montanists were treated so poorly was because we held on to a pre-tribulational position. So don't think that it's brand new. It's not, it's not a brand new subject. And so many people want to say, oh, just by ourselves right now. You know, I don't think we're on the air, are we, Joe? All right, we're down. Get this for a moment. Do you realize the world at large hates what we believe? Not only do we hold a pre-tribulational position, but we believe in church perpetuity. How many of us believe in the Lord's establishing of His church upon this earth? It's not a popular belief, and people want us to reject it. But what did Jesus say? The gates of hell shall not prevail. And isn't it interesting? The rest of the world wants the Baptist to become like that. And the Baptists have for the most part. Think about it for a moment. Do you realize how many Baptists have taken the name Baptist off their church doors? You know who used to be the strongest Baptist in America? The Southern Baptist. Now they are even taking the name Baptist off their church doors and they're putting it down in a little tiny print upon their walls, a Baptist church. It's time that we let our yeas be yeas and our nays be nays. When people ask me, what do we believe? We're missionary Baptists. Why are we missionary Baptists? Number one, because we believe in carrying the gospel to all corners of the world. And we hold to the faith that the Baptists have held for so long. All right, I'm off that little rocking horse for a bit. Reality is, is that whenever we see the Word of God in its pleasure, it should be one to where, if you look at that chart, it then comes on down to the curve where you see Charles Spurgeon. And even Spurgeon believed and he practiced the pre-tribulational position. The influence of a man named Arthur W. Pink is one that a lot of people love to, to fight about. How many of you all realize that Pink was persuaded to follow after what we call postmillennialism? When Pink made the mistake of crawling into his closet, and I do believe it was a mistake, at the beginning when Pink wrote his materials, his writings were just, they were vibrant. They were, they were exciting. And the reason 
through others of Christ. And to my shame, I don't think I do it enough, even though I try to be a witness as much as I can. Coming on down, you'll see that there's a circle where you got eyes going in every direction. Oh, there it is. See right? You see it at this point? Right here. Eyes going in every direction. Why is that put up there? Eyes going in every direction is one thing in particular. Because we are so messed up in our hopes and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't know what to believe. And if you don't agree with me, As long as you allow me to teach my point of view, I'm, I'm happy with you. The reality is, is that a church should be just as settled on their eschatology as any position. And I've got news for you folks. Eschatology is all about the restoration of Israel. Turn with me to the book of Romans, and let's go to chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Let's go down to verse 25. Now, I want you to see this. And if you aren't at Romans chapter 11, 25, please get there. It says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. There have always been saved Jews. And there will continue to always be saved Jews. But for the majority of the Jewish nations, they do not believe. I remember many, many years ago, I was doing some street preaching in Cincinnati, Ohio, and there was a little boy on a bicycle. And he was listening to us. Man, we would jump up on the fender of that truck, or up on the uh, tailgate of that truck, and we'd just blast him. Man, we'd preach, we'd preach. And as soon as one voice went out, another one would jump up in its place. I finally had the opportunity to talk to this little boy, and he goes, oh, well, we know that's what, what you're saying right now is a lie. I said, pardon me? He goes, well, I'm Jewish. Eleven-year-old boy. I'm Jewish. We know the apostles stole the body of Jesus. I said, what? I now, at that moment, I realized that the very lie that was told in Matthew chapter 28 was still in existence to the Jewish people today. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. And so verse 26, so and so all Israel shall be saved. I had somebody argue with me one time. Does that mean every Israel... Israel shall be saved. That means from every tribe that we see listed in the book of Revelation 6 and 7, there shall be one of every tribe at least in that salvation. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion uh, on the deliverer and uh, shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is the covenant unto them, which I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake.
Reality is, is that when we take and study eschatology, it is the conclusion of the Gentile period, and it is now the beginning of what we now know of as the other period. So now it brings down the question, this is point number B. Uh, uh, Roman number 1B. As I have studied the word, I have found that the Lord speaks of the day of his millennial reign and the rapture together. The separation of thought begins with the word now. And so when we take a look at this, I want you to understand how powerful that word now is. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Acts. And let's go to chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Notice again, the parable of the fig tree is the beginning of Israel and the restoration of the people to the land. Let's go down to verse 6. And notice what it says. When they therefore were come together, this was at the time that the Lord was going to ascend into heaven, when they were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Notice what he said. And he said unto them, you don't know what you're talking about. Is that what it says? Well, you're just confused. Uh, you know, everyone that is saved is now part of Israel. Is that what it says? The answer that the Lord gave them is very concise. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. The things that were mentioned in Matthew chapter 24 are not for you to know exactly when they're going to occur. This is in the Father's own power and in his own hands. So again, I'm going to read verse 7. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Another one that is important is the summer budding is truly the early restored life of Israel. Hosea chapter 9. Let's go back over to the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 9. If you have trouble finding Hosea, if you find Joel, it's right before it. If you can't find Joel, I feel sorry for you. All right, Hosea chapter 9, and let's go down, if you will, uh, to verse 19. Well, that's not where I'm supposed to be. Hosea 9, make sure I'm right. I think it's 119. I think that 9 got in there by mistake. I will have to find that verse. For some reason, I mistyped it, and I hate it when I do things like that. So let's go back to Isaiah, Hosea chapter 2. In verse 19, it says, And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee uh, unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. Let's go over, if you will, now to Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah chapter 24. And let's go down, uh, begin with verse 1. Jeremiah 24, beginning in verse 1. The Lord showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set in the temple of the Lord. And after that, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried them away captive Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, and the carpenters and the smiths from Jerusalem, which had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty figs, meaning 
destroyed figs, which could not be eaten, they were, uh, uh, they were so ba- uh, bad. Then said the Lord unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And he said, Figs, the good figs, the very good, and the evil, very evil. That cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Again the word of the Lord said unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For, and by the way, did you notice he said, And I will carry them away for their good. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them, and not pull them down, and I will plant them, and not pluck them up. Now, why is the fig tree so important? One more time, let's go to the book of Matthew, chapter 24. And let's go to verse 32. Notice what the Lord says. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender, that branch being tender normally would be the springtime, when the figs blossom, when they're getting ready to add on their figs, and put it forth leaves, you know the summer is nigh. So likewise, when you shall see these things, know that it is near, even the doors thereof. So the one thing that we're going to conclude right here is this. How do we know that we're getting closer to the time of the Lord's return to Israel. We know this because of the fact of the blossoming of the fig tree. One of the things I want to do is bring in some of the Jewish money and things like that, for, and we'll pass it around so everybody can take a look at it. There's two things that mean a lot to the Jewish people. Number one, olives, olive oil. Number two, the fig tree. The blossoming of the fig tree means Israel is a nation that can stand on her own. When did that happen? It didn't, believe it or not, it didn't happen in 1948, I think it was uh, when they became a nation. It didn't even happen in 1967. Israel did not really become a nation until 1973. When they began to, they were attacked on their holy day they were attacked on every side by the enemy. And they won that war convincingly without the help of any nation. Oh yeah, I was actually in the military or getting ready to go in the military when that occurred. And a friend of mine, uh, Larry Hennicutt, who I graduated with, was on his way over and uh, they said, we'll train you when you get there. But the reality is, is before America even set foot on shore, they had already won the battle. Just one more example, and then we'll, we'll pick up here next week. Many years ago, I was stationed at Tyndall Air Force Base uh, in, uh, you know, Florida. And, I'm, and we had this Israeli pilot, and he always wore a black glove on this one hand. He was uh, the equivalent of a major in the Air Force, of our American Air Force. And he was well known. Well... One of the things that they did is they gave him a simulated failure in the, in the uh, simulator. They gave him one engine that had been shot out, but as long as the wind turbine kept going, it, they had hydraulic. Then he had a hydraulic failure. He was armed with missiles, and he, and he fought all the way through until the missiles came in. 
After he had delivered his payload and his missiles, he flew back in. And his landing gear wouldn't come down, so he had to eject, and the plane had to crash. When he got out, he made this statement. He said that was just like the 73 wars. The reason he wore black glove, he was missing these three fingers. You see, a shell, he had flown up the Suez Canal in 1973, and he wiped out the batteries so that Israel could cross over into Egypt. But in so doing, a shell came into the cockpit and took out those three fingers. And here's what he said. We never pulled the trigger on a missile till we're within two miles. You Americans pulled the trigger seven miles. He said, at two miles, we're going to get debris. And we're going to get it into our engines. He said, but why do we wait? Because we have everything to die for and nothing to live for. You know, aren't we glad that we have everything to live for and to die is gain? Lord, bless this time that we've had together. May the lessons that we've had today be for your honor and glory. So lead us as we go into the next service. In Jesus' name, amen.